Hebrews chapter 4, if you're looking for where we're going to be this morning, we're going to be at the end of 4 and the beginning of 5. When I was a senior in high school, I had a friend named Pat Mickle, and Pat's older brother studied law and had just graduated from law school and got hired at a large law firm in Chicago. And his first year uh, practicing law there for this law firm, they gave him a salary of $600,000. Now, his brother was not a believer and didn't have the values of a believer, and so we asked him one time, well, what do you do in Chicago? He goes, well, I practice law, of course, and I live in a nice apartment. I date very pretty women, and I eat very thick steaks. This is what I do. And I knew right then that I wanted to go into law. Uh, now, uh, we asked him, so what is it like practicing law? You know, is it very uh, Perry Mason law and order, very intense? He goes, no, 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 I, I do corporate real estate law. I structure the deals for when companies buy large pieces of property and make sure that all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. I'm rarely in a courtroom. I do a lot of reading, a lot of research, a lot of writing of letters and papers and all the rest. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment that you have just wrongly been convicted of murder. Uh, there's been a murder on your street, and the police have come to your house. They think that you're the one who has done that very terrible thing. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you haven't, but here you are now. Having, through the first couple of rungs of the legal ladder, been convicted as guilty of this thing which you didn't do. And you're able to appeal your case all the way to the Supreme Court to the very highest court in the land. This is your last opportunity to find freedom. And you call my friend Pat's brother and say, hey, would you mind representing me in court? What would he tell you? Well, I, I, I would love to be able to help you, of course, but I have never been in a trial like that in my life. It's not what I do. I've never defended someone who's been accused of committing murder before. I've never found that kind of data. I've never seen the DNA. I've never done any of that. I am not the kind of person that you would want representing you in a moment of life and death. Here we are at the end of chapter 4, introduced to a new theme in Hebrews, or one that is being Riding harder now as we get deeper and deeper into this letter to believers who are tempted to turn back as circumstances are getting more and more difficult to turn back to the life they knew before. And the argument being made in this passage and in passages that follow is this. You are in a terrible, terrible place. You stand before a holy God accused of unconscionable things. Who will stand and represent you before this holy God? Well, you want someone who knows what he's talking about. You want someone who's been there before. You want someone familiar with the arguments and the data and the evidence and familiar with the judge and familiar with the process and familiar with how to set men free. And what we have filling that role in the lives of believers is Jesus Christ, described here legally as our great high priest. And if there's a big idea that emerges from the passage, it's something like this. Jesus lovingly represents his people before the Father as their perfect priest. Jesus lovingly represents the Father, represents the people before the Father 
as their perfect and holy and righteous and loving high priest. It's not simply that he's able. He's in the right position. But he's also of the right disposition. He is able and willing, eager, himself immersed in the middle of the trial to help us persevere to the end. We're going to ask three questions from the passage that's in front of us. This is starting in uh, chapter 4, verse 14. I'm going to read some of it for us here in just a moment through the first 10 verses of chapter 5. As we try to figure out what's happening here in this passage, three questions, just uh, briefly. One, what did priests do? What did priests do? Secondly, how is Jesus just like all of the other priests? And we'll see that there are some answers that emerge from this passage. And thirdly, how is Jesus different from all of those other priests? So what do priests do? How is Jesus like the other priests, and how is he different from all of the other priests? Now, I'm going to do you a favor here in this moment. That clock in the back has stopped. It says that it is 1035, and I would gladly preach for the next hour and a half. But I'm going to take my watch off and set it here on the uh, lectern, and I will do my very best to pretend like I'm paying attention to it. So let me go ahead and pray for us, and then we're going to read a little bit here from Hebrews chapter 4 and 5. Father, I pray that you would help us to reckon with who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ has done through his cross and by his death and by his resurrection to redeem those who are lost to their sin, rebels against a holy God, and now sit at your table, beloved, as sons and daughters. Help us to revere to be in awe, to glorify and magnify the God who does this incredible thing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We start in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. We touched on this a couple of weeks ago. We'll try to give it its due this morning. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. We talked about all of these let us statements in the book of Hebrews. I think there's something like 11 of them. There are four grouped here in a row. This is the fourth of them. How can we persevere to the end? Well, we persevere in part by holding fast. We just think about holding fast to the anchor. Uh, this week, I watched the very end of the return of the king from the Lord of the Rings movies. And you remember at the very end when Frodo goes to throw the one ring of power into the volcanic heart of the mountain of Mordor. He's flung over the edge as he wrestles with Gollum. Gollum falls to the fiery pit below. And here Frodo is holding on one hand, just a couple of fingers. He is holding fast for dear life. And that's what we're called to here in Hebrews chapter 4, holding fast like your last four fingers holding on to the lip of the edge with certain death below. Not physical death, spiritual death. And his great friend Sam comes and grabs his arm and pulls him to safety. This is what the picture is of Jesus here. How do we hold fast? How are we able to make it to the end? It's because we have a Savior who comes and grabs us and pulls us to safety. Since then, we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is 
unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. For every high priest is chosen uh, from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Aaron is one of those names that you need to note here. There's two big names. That's the first one. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made. A high priest was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is a quote from Psalm chapter 2. It's in your notes. And he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's a quote from Psalm 110. You'll remember that there's no book that the author of Hebrews cites more than the book of Psalms. Psalms for him is not just some book of songs and wonderful little trite things to remember in the morning, right? This is deep theology he's drawing out of the book of Psalms. I told you the first name was Aaron. That's the first big name you need to know here. The second one is Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Aaron and Melchizedek. Two priests in Israel, very influential, and Jesus is being compared and contrasted to both of them. So, uh, you know, we we have a couple of babies in here. Um, I don't know who will have a, a baby next, but if it's a boy, let me recommend Melchizedek. Right? That's a great name. We'll call him Mel. It's going to be awesome. I don't know uh, who, who's next on the slate there, but this is going to be wonderful. I know, Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up, verse 7, prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. What did priests do? Why is it so significant that Jesus is compared to the priests? Well, the priests had a very important function in the nation of Israel. First, they represented the people before God with gifts and sin offerings. We see that in verse 1. They are appointed to act on behalf of men to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. That is, they mediated the Mosaic Covenant. You remember, this is what we talked about all through our study of the book of Deuteronomy, that God came down to the nation of Israel as soon as he had drew them out of slavery in Egypt, and he gave them a deal. If you obey me, I will bless you, you will be my people, and I'll be with you in your presence, tabernacle among you, and the entire world will glorify me for all of the blessings and wisdom that are imbued throughout your society. Disobey me, and you'll know the harsh consequences of living unholy lives in front of a holy God. That was the deal that was offered to the people of Israel. 
And the people accept that deal now at Mount Sinai. This is called the covenant. And it's given through Moses. Moses is the one who arbitrated the covenant for the people. And the priests had the responsibility of teaching the people about the covenant and then helping them live under the terms of the covenant. So let's say you did disobey. You sinned. Well, then you would make your way to the tabernacle, which was the temporary sanctuary where the people worshipped. It's where the people worshipped and offered sacrifices before the temple was built in Jerusalem. And you would go and you would offer a sacrifice. And you would take uh, the animal, more often than not it was an animal, up to the priest. And the priest would have you lay your hand on the head of that animal. The animal's throat would be cut. Its blood would be sprinkled on the altar. And there would be a recognition that you had sinned. And that the consequence for sin is death. And we would reckon with the fact that God is merciful and allow that person to walk back out of the sanctuary into the assembly of the people. And so this is what the people did. The priests, they took in those sacrifices. They offered the sacrifices. They mediated for the people the Mosaic covenant, that God is a God of mercy, but he's also a God of holiness. And here's how you must live in the presence of a holy God. Now, three kinds of priests. You remember when the people enter the Holy Land that there are 12 tribes, 12 family tribes there in the nation of Israel. And that all the tribes are offered a very special place in the land. They get their own little parcel. That's where they're going to carve out their spot. Except one tribe, the tribe that's named after its progenitor, Levi. Levi doesn't get space. Levi gets a job. Levi and his family throughout the ages will serve as the clan of priests. So all the priests are going to come from the tribe of Levi. That's their job. And if you were generically a qualified male from the tribe of Levi, you could serve as a priest. You were kind of a priest here lower down on the totem pole of all of the priests. You could go to the tabernacle and you could help clean up around the courtyard there of the tabernacle. You could help people in and out, but you weren't offering sacrifices. Offering sacrifices there in the courtyard and doing what needed to be done inside the actual temple and tabernacle itself, that was reserved for a special family within the tribe of Levi. And those were the sons and grandsons and on down through the generations of Aaron. Remember, Aaron was Moses' right-hand man. Moses was the great prophet. Aaron was the high priest. So the sons of Aaron, those are the ones who actually took in all the sacrifices. And, did all, and then from among them, we would have one. We would choose one person. And so we have the Levitical priests down here. We have the Aaronic priesthood up here, A-A-R-O-N-I-C, if you're wondering how to spell Aaronic, right? And then up here from among them, we have one person, one, only one for a generation, the great high priest of Israel. And he didn't just offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. He offered a specific sacrifice once a year, one sacrifice for the entire nation on this day of holiness, Yom Kippur. Right? He would walk into the Holy of Holies where no one else was allowed to go the entire rest of the year. And he would offer a sin sacrifice for the people in begging for atonement from God there on the altar on the throne of God. And if he were found unholy, unworthy to be in that room, he would be struck dead immediately. This is what priests did. Now, what's happening here in Hebrews chapter 4 is Jesus is being compared to the great high priest. We had 
high priest after high priest after high priest. And even though they had rise to the top of the pile, they were found that generation after generation, we needed another one, and they offered another sacrifice year in and year out and year in and year for a millennia before Jesus arrives, and even further, nearly 1,400 years with only brief interruptions. The high priest would represent the nation of Israel, offering the sacrifice to God, mediating the covenant for the people. And then Barnabas says this, here comes Jesus. He's not just a high priest, he's the greatest of all the high priests. And he brings to you a new covenant, a new covenant that's based on this idea that we don't need to offer a sacrifice every year. We're going to offer one sacrifice and it's going to last forever. And not only that, but these poor priests had to offer sacrifices for their own sins. Not Jesus. He is the sacrifice for sins. Though he had none. Sinful priests offered sacrifices on their own behalf to seek atonement. Jesus offers himself as a sacrifice perfect in atonement for the people. Jesus is the great high priest. Now, how is he like all of the other priests? Because the author here makes a couple of points that are important to him so that we understand how Jesus is like a priest. First, we find that he's been tempted and is therefore sympathetic. For we do not, verse 15 of chapter 4, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. It's easy. It's easy to find yourself right on the precipice of temptation. Maybe it's a temptation to sin, a temptation to faithlessness, a temptation to abandon the plan that God has for you. And to think, there is no one who understands what I'm going through. There's no one who's ever been right where I've been. I am all alone. It is a burden borne on my shoulders and no others. And the author of Hebrews is telling you, no, no, this sacrifice, this great high priest, this high and anointed one, he knows exactly what you're going through. I love that old story about the guy who is walking down the road and he falls into a pit and the walls are too steep and too high for him to crawl out. And a friend walks by and he shouts out, friend, will you help me? Send me a ladder, throw me a rope. And the friend says, I'm sorry, I can't help you. And he walks on down the road. And he sees another friend walk by a little bit later and he says, friend, could you help me? Could you throw down a ladder or send down a rope? I'm sorry, I can't help you. And finally, a friend walks by and he's, friend, could, could you help me? I'm stuck down here. Surely I'm going to die. Could you send down a ladder or throw down a rope? And without a moment's hesitation, the third friend just jumps down into the pit. And he says, oh, fool, what have you done? Now we're both stuck down here. And the friend replies, well, yeah, but I've been down here before and I know how to get out. Jesus knows what you're going through. Jesus is with you. Jesus knows the way out. He's our sympathetic high priest. He's been right where you are. He can help you through to the end. Secondly, 
He's able to deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. He's able to deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. Verse 2 of chapter 5, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself, this is speaking of these other priests, is beset with weaknesses. Now we'll come back to that in just a moment. We know that Jesus is a gentle high priest. We know that he could beat us to absolute and eternal death. And we would have to extol his holiness while he did it. But instead he stops and he embraces this poor and broken people and in a very gentle way helps them along. I'm watching this great documentary about uh, Mr. Rogers. I don't know if you've seen that. I think it's called Won't You Be My Neighbor. It's brilliant. Uh, aired on PBS, but he actually bought it on DVD. And there's this great moment from the late 60s uh, the story that had captured the news uh, for uh, that two-week-long news cycle across the nation uh, there in the early parts of 1969 was that a couple of uh, young black kids were uh, at a community uh, pool and were kicked out uh, viciously by a fairly racist uh, owner there. And he had caught them in there and he'd taken a couple of gallons of bleach and was pouring bleach there in the pool and bleach on the kids. And anyway... Mr. Rogers sees this on the news and he finds it absolutely infuriating. And he has a, a young man who works on the show who plays a police officer, and it's a young African-American man who plays a police officer, which was already sort of disorienting for a lot of people who watched the show. And he has this moment there, it's summertime on the set of the show, and he has a little plastic pool. You know, we have the inflatable ones now, this is just a molded piece of plastic. And Mr. Rogers has taken off his socks and his shoes and he's rolled up his pant legs and he's got his little water hose and he's putting water into the pool. And he's cooling his feet on a hot day. And here comes the young African-American man who plays police officer on Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. And it's such a hot day. And he says, would you like to join me? And he goes, oh, I, I don't want to. Well, please, uh, you just come here and join me. And, and he takes off his socks and shoes and he puts his feet into the pool and he goes you know I, I don't even have a towel and Mr. Rogers says oh don't worry about it I've got a towel you can share mine and so they cool their feet there in the little pool and when the time comes for the officer to move along his way Mr. Rogers who was uh, I don't know if you knew this many uh, you might an ordained Presbyterian minister gets down on his hands and knees and takes the towel and in what is unmistakable for people of faith, washes the feet of the young man and dries them. And he helps him put his socks and shoes back on. Now here's a man who is a, even then in the late 60s, a pop cultural icon, who's seeing something profoundly disturbing, has an enormous pulpit from which to scathingly rain down fury on those who had done this egregious thing. But how did he deal with them? It was this phrase, right? He dealt gently with the ignorant and wayward. I think of Christ and those same words dealing with me. How often I am ignorant. How often I am wayward. And how often when I deserve the unadulterated fury of God, he deals with me gently. He is so loving. He is so sympathetic. 
He is so divinely helpful, even when I am unworthy. Thirdly, he's not self-aggrandizing. There may be a better way to say this. We don't want to deny the fact that we exist for the glory of God. But I love what he says here in verses 4 and 5 of Hebrews 5. And no one takes this honor for himself, that's being appointed high priest, but only when called by God, just like Aaron was. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. There is humility in Christ that would have been seen in all of the great high priests, all of the faithful ones, who weren't doing this for their own self-benefit, but were doing this in service to the nation because they had been called by God. Read a great little uh, historical nugget here about George Washington, who is elected president and really didn't want to serve. He said, I, I feel as though I'm going to the Capitol, which was then New York, in order to, like a criminal being sent to the gallows. <laughs> so he's riding up in his caravan from Virginia up to New York, and he stops in New Jersey for the night. And a whole bunch of people find out that the new president is there, and he's the most famous man on the continent, in the hemisphere. And he finds out that the next morning that thousands of people on horses and carriages are going to line the streets, and there's going to be great fanfare, and they're going to escort him all the way to New York City. And so the next morning, uh, his aide goes and knocks on the door, Mr. President, and he was as frequently called this in the late 1770s and 80s, Your Excellency, Mr. Washington, it's time to go. And his aide opens the door and finds that the room is completely vacant. Washington had heard about this the night before, got up an hour earlier and set off by himself in the middle of the pre-dawn morning because he didn't want the attention. He had been appointed by the people to serve him, but it wasn't all about him, not for Washington. And so in Jesus Christ, we see humility displayed right here. Appointed by the Father to serve the people and appointed to this position of priority. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. There is no other. He's like the priests. But he's also very dissimilar from the priests. There are several things that make him very, very different from all of the others who have ever served. First, Jesus wasn't beset by weaknesses. He's neither ignorant nor wayward. Go ahead and take a look back there at verse 2. He can deal gently, speaking of the high priests in Israel, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. Why? Because he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. There had never been a perfect high priest. There had never been a person in the history of the nation of Israel who was able to walk up and offer this sin offering for the people who did not first have to purify himself. There was a great deal of ritual that went in on the Day of Atonement for the high priest getting himself ritually cleaned washing and incense and all the rest. It took hours to prepare himself to go in to the Holy of Holies and reckon with the sins of the people because he had to reckon with his own sin first. Not so with Jesus. The Holy One, who has never 
sinned, who is able to march boldly into the Holy of Holies and is able to bring those who have been redeemed by His blood with the exact same confidence and vigor into the holy place of God. It's important. It's important that we affirm doctrinally and theologically and practically that Jesus is sinless. The entire substance of our faith disintegrates the moment we affirm the sinfulness of Jesus. If Jesus is not perfect, then his sacrifice isn't perfect, and we cannot be made perfect in an imperfect, unjustified people die forever. Do you know that? If Jesus only once had strayed from the will of God, if Jesus only once had succumbed to temptation, you would know the torment of the fury of the wrath of a holy God forever. It is only because not once did he ever yield, not once, that you can be with the Father forever and ever and ever and ever. Secondly, why? Why wasn't Jesus beset by weakness? It's because he was tempted, but he never succumbed to temptation. Not once. Therefore, exempt from having to offer a sin sacrifice for himself. And then we find this, and this is one of the most difficult to interpret, weird, interesting, theological, fascinating uh, have I said difficult already? Things in the entirety of the book of Hebrews. Now, you remember we explained to you the structure of the priesthood in Israel, that we had the Levitical priests down here, and then we had those who came from Aaron, and then we had Aaron, the great high priest. And if we're comparing Jesus to any of the great high priests in history, we probably would have chose someone from Aaron's line, if not Aaron himself, right? Wrong. This is where Barney gets kind of weird, and he's going to make an interesting theological point. He doesn't choose the greatest priest in the history of Israel to be Aaron. He judges it to be someone named Melchizedek. Mel. Go ahead and turn back to Genesis chapter 14. I want you to see this step by step. Now, we're going to talk about Melchizedek for a while here on Sunday mornings. So if you're a little confused here this week, uh, give it a couple of weeks and we'll see if we can clarify what's going on. But Genesis chapter 14 is where we're introduced to Melchizedek. Now we've already read about him in Psalm 110 where he's described as a type of Christ to come. Uh, that the Messiah who would come in this Messianic Psalm uh, would uh, be the regal priest from the order of Melchizedek. Here's where we find Melchizedek. Um, Abram is getting into battle. Abraham, this we'll know him later. There's a coalition of kings who have decided to war against Abram. Abram defeats them. So in Genesis chapter 14, verse 17, we're first introduced here to Melchizedek. Now, after his return, that's Abram's, after Abram's return from the defeat of uh, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba which is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, 
possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. All right. There's some interesting things about this God Melchizedek. And what I want to do for the next couple of minutes is just, just work our way down the rabbit hole just for a moment. Let's start with his name, Melchizedek. It's a combination of two different terms in the Hebrew. Uh, Melech means king. Sadiq means righteousness. This figure that we have just been introduced to, his name means something like the king of righteousness or our king is righteous, something like that. Now, where is he the king of? He's a king of a small city called Salem. It's the same word we get, uh, Shalom, right? This city of peace. Later, David will conquer this city and make it his capital, and he will rename it. Anybody want to take a guess? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So here we have this king of righteousness who rules from Jerusalem, who is apparently also a high priest there in Israel. And then we find this happening at the middle of verse 20. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Wait, what? Abram, for the only time in his life, offers a tithe offering to the king of righteousness who rules in God's city on Zion there, Jerusalem. And what did the king of Jerusalem, Melchizedek, offer there in return? He offers him a blessing in the name of the God Most High, and he offers him what? What to consume? Bread and wine. Does that remind you of anyone else that you may have seen in the New Testament? The king of righteousness who rules from Jerusalem, who offers to his disciples bread and wine even as he blesses them with eternal peace, to whom we tithe not only our money but our lives. There are a couple of times in the Old Testament where we could make an argument that there are such a thing as a Christophany. A Christophany. Now, that's a big word there. All that means is we can make the argument that there was in the Old Testament times when Jesus, the second member of the Godhead, appeared on earth physically before he was born to the Virgin Mary there in the first century A.D. This may very well be one of those Christophanies. It might be. We don't know because it's still kind of unclear. <laughs> I can't give you a definitive answer. But we do know that what's happening here with Melchizedek is at least this. It is at least a type. Now, there's this thing that happens literarily in the Bible where we have types and anti-types. Now, anti, we normally mean, uh, as a prefix there, against something, right? If you're anti-communist, you're against communism. That's not how that works, literarily. In the Old Testament, you have types. And Duncan Johnson is taking a class on this right now. So I'm going to say what I think this means, and he's going to fix it later. So if you find him in the foyer on the front porch, he'll correct all of this for you. In the Old Testament, you have types. People who represent, in a small way, um, a person, place, or thing that will find greater fulfillment in the future. Adam 
is a type of Christ. Adam, by his sin, purchases death for humanity as the first man. Jesus is the anti-type. Jesus, as the firstborn of creation, the new man, by his righteousness, purchases life for all who believe. Isaac is a type of Christ. Isaac, the son, being offered as a sacrifice to assuage the wrath of God. Jesus, the son, being offered as a sacrifice. Moses is a type of Christ. Moses, the redeemer who liberates the people from slavery in Egypt. Jesus, the anti-type who liberates the faithful from slavery to sin and death. Jesus and Moses walk into a bar. The bartender looks at Jesus and says, we don't serve your type here. So Moses walks out. (laughs) Nerdiest joke of all time, right? It could be that here in the introduction of this person of Melchizedek that we have an actual Christophany a pre-birth incarnation of the second member of the Godhead, Jesus Christ. It's possible. Or it may not be. But it is at least one of the strongest types in the entirety of the Old Testament. Here's where I would make my argument. If you ask me where I stood, and this is today, I don't know if I'd be there tomorrow, go ahead and turn back to Hebrews chapter 7. Again, we're going to see this figure Melchizedek multiple times. He doesn't choose the author. He doesn't choose Aaron. He's not interested in Aaron as the high priest. Aaron was flawed. Aaron was sinful. Aaron gave line to a whole host of sons and grandsons on down who were also sinful. Instead, he chooses a high priest that predates the Mosaic Covenant. This is a priest of a different type, of a higher, more eternal covenant, the king of Salem, right? Take a look at this. The priestly order. How do we understand this Melchizedekian figure? Again, really, really long term there. We've had this before. I think Lisa Lucas has used weird words from sermons uh, as uh, vocabulary words in homeschooling. Hannah, you should anticipate this week the word Melchizedekian. I'm just telling you. I don't want to take a spelling test, but I'm really (laughs) rooting for you. Melchizedekian. Chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek... King of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him and said to Abraham, apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling The Son of God, he continues a priest forever. How great was this man to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of his spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have descent and receives tithes from Abraham and has blessed him who has the promises, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the case of tithes, 
uh, are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one to whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Melchizedek receives tithes. He is without beginning or end. He is like the son of man. <laughs> if you had to ask me today, I would tell you, I think that this is an actual, honest-to-goodness Christophany there in the Old Testament. What do I know? I can't tell you definitively. Here's what I can say. If we're choosing to describe what it means for Jesus to be the great high priest, we can say this. He is without precedent. He is without parallel. He is unparalleled in power and majesty and might and holiness. He is the greatest there has ever been. Not in any corner of the annals of history can you find anyone who compares to Jesus Christ. He is the great prophet revealing the words of God, Hebrews chapter 1 and 2. He is the great king who rules with his enemies as a footstool under his feet, Hebrews 2 and 9. He is the great high priest, unlike any other, Hebrews 4 and 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 and onward and on and on. Get used to this theme. We're going to be there for a while. There is none like Jesus and yet, if we're talking about what it means to follow Jesus, we know this. For as incredible as he is, matchless in his wonder and majesty, he's still remarkably, remarkably approachable. He is so different. He is so transcendent that we could ignore Christ altogether as some unconscionable thing. I uh, read an article years ago about prayer in the Catholic Church. It's rather uncommon for most Catholics to pray to Jesus. Did you know that? Many will pray to Mary. They have to say their Hail Marys in the morning. right? But in daily prayers, when times are tough, and you actually need help on the ground, most Catholics revealed in this particular survey that they prayed to the saints. And there are saints for virtually everything. You know, Pop and I go metal detecting. It is really common to watch those metal detecting videos on YouTube and find people finding those little pendants with a different saint on it. A saint of lost causes, a saint of people who can't find their way, saints of alcoholics and everything else, right? Saints of people who are left-handed, saints of people who are left-handed but prefer to write right-handed. I mean, there's a saint for everything. And they asked him, why do you pray to the saints and not to Jesus Christ? And they say, well, he, he's just too intimidating. He's too holy. He's too unapproachable. He's too other. I need someone who understands what I'm going through. Jesus knows what you're going through. Jesus is your ally. Jesus is your representative before the Father. Jesus is the one pleading for you. Jesus is the one who gets you into the holy place. Jesus is the one by his work at the cross and his work now as an intercessor makes it possible for you to boldly approach the throne of grace. When you need mercy, the author says, when you need grace, when you need help, when you're struggling to hold fast the confession, your fingertips falling off the edge, what does he tell you to do? Go to Jesus. Jesus is the high priest of your confession. Go to him. And you can. 
Because for all of his wonder and majesty, unconscionable and unfathomable as it is, he's still been right where you are. And he asks you to come. Jesus is the arbiter of grace. You go to him to find mercy. That's at the heart of this new covenant. Secondly, Jesus' work as high priest represents the high point of God's work of redemption. Think about how many sacrifices have been offered by the Aaronic priesthood through the 1,400 plus odd years that that existed. Not hundreds, not thousands, but millions, millions and millions of times birds and rams and other things were brought into the courtyard of the tabernacle of God and their throats were cut and their blood was spilt and it took away exactly zero sins. And here Jesus comes. One sacrifice, good for all time. The high priest who offers a sacrifice is the sacrifice. His blood makes the new covenant possible. His body substantiates it for all of us. This wondrous thing that happens. Though we are unworthy, he makes a way for us and does not keep us at arm's length so that we have to perpetually be reminded of how much other we are, but draws us in as intercessor to be right beside him as we approach the Father with all of our grief and all of our... Jesus is remarkably approachable, even in his perfection. Are you approachable? Now, I've got to tell you something, and I don't know if you knew this or not, but you're not perfect. You're not Jesus, right? Some of you may be really close, but not quite. And I've met a number of people in my life, and you know, they gave off such a sense of, I'm not going to call it holiness or righteousness, I'm going to call it self-righteousness, real attainment. And I thought, if I ever had a problem, I would never go to that person. <laughs> when we lived in Dallas, I, I visited a church, and the pastor apparently had got up before the congregation the week before we got there, and he said, next week, i got to tell you, I've, I've got some things going on in my life. I need to confess it to the people. And uh, this is when, like, every bulletin, sermon, PowerPoint across the nation had to include the word um, authentic, Right? That was kind of the word of the month. And so we were there on the week when he was going to reveal it. And uh, I mean, I personally felt for this guy standing before 2,000 people at this big Bible church in Dallas, but also really curious, right? Surely he's, uh, you know, hit somebody or done something terrible or whatever. And he got up before the congregation and tears were streaming down his face. And he goes, here we are on on uh, Northwest Highway here in Dallas and the speed limit is 45 miles an hour 
and for years I've been driving over 50 miles an hour. And I thought, is that all you got? Because <laughs> if something has really happened with me, I am never going to that guy. <laughs> I've done nine more exciting things than that today. And I've been here for an hour, right? Here's the incredible thing about Jesus. He is massively approachable, though perfect. You are imperfect. <laughs> but do you project the kind of approachability that Jesus does? Or is there a wall around the way that you describe yourself that keeps people away for fear of revealing something where you might go, oh, I never did that. One of the great lessons that we can learn from a passage like this one is, oh, Christ, perfect in his love and power and sacrifice, still calls us to come. Let me live my life in such a way that other imperfect people just like me can find fellowship and encouragement and faithfulness and joy in my company. Let them come to me. Father, I pray this morning for our congregation and for myself and for the lowercase c church and the capital C church that we would be wholly devoted to Jesus Christ who models for us a model of ministry that invites people to come not based on on the relatability of a Savior who is imperfect, but just the opposite, who in his perfection offers a sacrifice that makes it okay for an imperfect people to come because all of their sins have been reckoned with already by him. In Jesus' name, amen.